Welcome to the Truth Over Comfort Show. Today's guest is James Corbett of The Corbett Report. He is a documentary filmmaker, article writer, interviewer, and even runs his own online course now. His documentaries are excellent. And the reason I respect James so much myself is that he always links up his sources, whether an article, an interview, or a two hour long <laughs> transcripted documentary influenced me when I read books, when I created a website, and even today when I conduct this interview, I will of course try and put as much as I can in the show notes. The topics today are the media and James's recent episode, the media are the terrorists and some other topics if we have time. So thank you for being here, James. How are you doing? I am doing fantastic. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. No problem. So I thought I'd just start with your your thoughts of the the media itself at the moment. So why do you think the media, the Western media, the American, British, whichever you see fit, is so incapable of telling the truth? Is it the advertisers? Is it just knowing the boundaries, self-censorship, access to these politicians? Or is it the network or people outside the network telling them not to? What, What are your thoughts on this? Uh, to all of those possibilities, I would say yes, 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 and yes. Um, I think there are a number of different factors that play into this. But speaking from my own personal experience, I would say if, uh, growing up in Canada in the 1980s, 1990s, obviously, I think it's quite obvious, at least to me in retrospect, and I think I did suspect it at the time, that the media was controlled in various ways that it there are certain subjects that just could not be talked about and certain um, pieces of information that just couldn't be uh, aired in polite society like uh, oh the absurd speculation that uh, that Lee Harvey Oswald was not a lone nut or something along those lines despite the fact that I I was cognizant even as a young boy uh, many 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 people have questions about that but if you ask a question it's you're just a, an insane wingnut or something like that. So the disconnect between reality and what was being reported and shown on TV or in the newspapers was obvious to me from a young age. But having said that, comparing it to the way that it is today, that discrepancy seems to have grown orders of magnitude vaster in the past decade or two. And I don't know if there's an acceleration that is going on, but certainly uh, as to the whys, why do why does this take place? I think it's quite obvious, presumably to your audience by now at any rate, that this does take place. But why does it take place? And you mentioned several different factors, all of which I think do play into this. I think the most obvious uh, explanation for this and the one that I think is easiest understood by pretty much everybody is the monetary incentive. Uh, the corporate media has a literal vested interest in reporting on some things, not reporting on other things that would be beneficial to their shareholders or their board members. And that's, again, that's pretty obvious, I think. So for example, when GE took over NBC and you got the conspiracy theory rock on Saturday Night Live talking about how oh, you know, GE has taken over NBC and they don't want you talking about nuclear weapons and things like this um, being revealed on Saturday Night Live as a ha ha ha, isn't this funny? And it was never aired again. Yeah, there, <laughs> there may be a reason for that. There may be certain things that maybe GE does not want reported on its media mouthpiece. So that 
basic monetary incentive, I think, again, is is pretty explanatory and does go f a far way towards explaining a lot of the types of censorship that we see, but not all the way. And there are other types of media entities that exist as well, not just corporate entities, but of course, government funded entities. So of course, in Canada, there was the CBC, in Britain, there's the BBC, mm -hmm. under various public broadcasters around the world. And uh, and there are other public broadcasters that are funded by listeners and other things. So it's not simply the monetary incentive, although I think that is a large part of it. Um, but uh, I mean, there are, there are many layers at which we could look at this, but I guess I want to drill down to the base of all of this, the basic layer, which is something that I attempted to do in a couple of things that I released last year. Um, for example, my Media Matrix documentary, which was sort of a condensation of the main points of a six hour lecture series that I delivered an online course uh, that's available right now um, on the history of mass media. And from in that, I wasn't just looking at the history of mass media in a historical, historiological sort of dry academic way. It was an attempt to explore the philosophical basis of what is media, mass media especially, and how does it function and why does it function this way? And when you look at it from that perspective, I think you see the bigger story here, which is the incredible, almost incomprehensible from our point of view, revolution that took place with the birth of the movable type printing press and the incredible explosion of information that took place in the wake of that invention. Um, obviously, manuscripts existed before Gutenberg, but the widespread access to books and literature and philosophy and news did not exist before the movable type printing press, not in the way that we understand it today. And uh, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but it was something like all of the scribes in all of Europe um, were able to produce something like 20,000 manuscripts in the first half of the 15th century. But in the second half of the 15th century, after the advent of the movable type printing press, it was something like 12 million books. And that, that, orders of magnitude, uh, more information spreading freely, obviously was going to have incredibly profound effects on society. And that's why I think you can make a pretty good case that the movable type printing press is probably the most important invention of the past millennium. And probably, uh, I think demonstrably had uh, impacts on such things as the Reformation, the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, all of these things were predicated on the movable type printing press. And because of the incredible ability of this technology to shape or reshape society, people who have uh, an interest in preserving the status quo or in gaining power or in using power to manipulate other people, obviously have an interest in controlling that technology. So uh, in my course, for example, I paint the picture from the movable type printing press, the Gutenberg revolution towards the Morgan Conspiracy, which was something I, uh, I talk about in the early part of the 20th century, by the point at which the movable type printing press, which was a complicated piece of, I mean, there was a lot going on, especially given that it was created before the Industrial Revolution. There was no machine uh, parts or anything like that. It was all handmade, but it was still possible for your average craftsman and workman to be able to put together something like that and, and, and basically have a small printer. And that's the way, for example, the American Revolution was able to common sense and these other pamphlets and tracts could be written and then distributed to millions of people in a way that would have been unthinkable in a prior age. But then 
by the advent of the 18th, 19th, 20th century, you start to get the rotary press and these other more complicated capital intensive technologies and distribution networks for newspapers and things. It started to become quite capital intensive. And unless you were a rich uh, in inheritor of, uh, of your father's wealthy estate, which is the case for a lot of the early media tycoons, actually. Um, but eventually it started to consolidate into a business, the business of media. And I think that's what we really saw in the 20th century. And if you chart the history of the 20th century in terms of the development of mass media and start to look at the way that these uh, corporations start to form around the basis of commercializing commercializing, and, and making, uh, commodifying news and information, which again is something that probably would have been unthinkable even a few hundred years ago, but now we're in this space where news and information becomes this commodity that can be bought and sold and traded and broadcast to the masses and used, obviously, to manipulate people. Exactly as, I suppose, every every writer, every person who, who engages in mass media is trying to get their ideas out to other people. That's That's sort of the nature of what this is. But because it was so incredibly successful um, before before anyone really understood what was happening, I think people tried to cotton onto that. So that's how we arrive in the 21st century with these gigantic media monopolies that are suddenly in some degree of danger because, oh, the, all these disruptive technologies are essentially Gutenberg 2.0, the, the printing press of our age, the internet revolution, and people talking to each other and and uh, not going to CNN or these few hand handful of, uh, of media corporations to get their news. That truly is a revolutionary moment. And I think that's exactly why we see so much crackdown coming right now. And I think that's part of why we see that gulf widening between what we know to be objective reality and what is being reported is widening because I think they are losing sort of the information control that they have enjoyed in previous ages. So I think they have to cl cling even more firmly to into their techniques of gaslighting and manipulating the public, at least that section of the public that still listens to them, which is a dwindling section of the public. Yeah, I'd have to agree there's, there's multiple reasons. If you take uh, Amy Roback from ABC, where she was calling that leak tape, talking about the Jeffrey Epstein story before it came out, that ABC or Disney squashed it and said, who's Jeffrey Epstein? They could obviously done one search result and obviously they knew who he was. Or you could look at John Kerry, where he got caught uh, and a leaked audio in 2016 saying that the US watched ISIS grow. They thought they could manage it and use it as a leverage against Assad, basically to overthrow a government and that Russia and Putin came in. And only three organizations even reported on, there was a leak tape, it was CNN, The Guardian, and The New York Times. They were the only ones who reported on the leak tape, but they left out that detail. And The New York Times one was, was the best because they, they put bits of audio in their article so you could listen, but they wouldn't post the full thing. And I went to the video and they literally used bits just after and just after. And someone obviously heard that and they thought, hmm, the US watched ISIS grow. Could be the biggest story of the 21st century, especially after 9-11 and all the wars. And they didn't report it, you know, to a normal person. How can how can you possibly explain that? Surely that's a huge story. So there's obviously lots of different reasons. I'm sure you're aware of those <laughs> leak tapes. I am indeed. Those are great examples. In fact, the Amy Roback um, 
leaked audio of her talking about the uh, the squelching of the Epstein story was my fake news story of the year for 2019, I believe, or 20 or whenever that occurred. Um, that uh, obviously that that that's a prime example of the way that this this operates. And you're exactly right. In one sense, it does seem to be against interest because the uh, the type of pushback that has always existed against these crazy conspiracies. There can't be a conspiracy. The The free press in the free Western world can't be controlled because if somebody had the inside scoop on 9-11 inside job or ISIS was allowed to form or something along those lines and they went and broadcast and they'd get all the attention and all the viewership and all the advertising and all the money. So, of course, there's this incentive for for anyone to break stories like that rather than cover them up. So you're you're crazy. That would never happen. And yet it demonstrably has. For example, in those cases that you lay out. Why? Why would it happen? I, I, this is this is where that monetary explanation starts to break down, because to a certain extent there is. Yeah, obviously, if somebody came out and was breaking all these incredible stories, there would be a monetary incentive in that unless unless the board members and uh, people in editorial positions actually had interest in certain stories not breaking for for a number of reasons. Um, one prime example, as we are recording this conversation, what is happening in Davos right now, the World Economic Forum, and who is at the World Economic Forum? Of course, a lot of journalists, but mm. as attendees of the World Economic Forum, not as journalists reporting on what's going on and let's get you the inside. No, they're they're stenographers who are going to be lapdogs to the World Economic Forum, again, for a multitude of reasons, some of them probably for just basic personal reasons of I'm hobnobbing with the elite, I'm an important person, or people who want access to certain people and know that if they say certain things, they won't get that access in the future, the pay to play system and all of this, it, it happens. And uh, again, as you say, there are many reasons for this, but it's so much more vast than I think most people understand. And there are trivial examples of this i suppose but then there are extremely important examples that you that you gesture to some of them um i'm sure everyone can think of other examples where the the press in its role of directing our attention because that is essentially what it does what the mainstream media conversation is becomes what people think about and that is one of the most important powers that any tyrant throughout history could have ever dreamt of having to be able to control people at the level of what they think about. Because by that, you can direct entire societies in ways that would be utterly, just totally madness if looked at from an objective standpoint. Case in point, the past three years. If, can you imagine if instead of having the uh, the COVID death count on every channel and oh, the big, the, the, pie charts and the, oh my God, how many people died today? Imagine if they were doing that about, say, I, I don't know, uh, uh, car accidents, car deaths. Oh my God, another 47 people died on the roads today. We have to do something about this. The exact same hype and panic could be used to direct people's attention to that or to the other thing. But no, it was directed in this particular way because, again, there are a number of people with their interests lying in this particular erection of the biosecurity state um, agenda that's playing out right now. So I think that's the prime example that we've all just lived through of people's attention being directed in a certain way for certain nefarious ends um, quite effectively, unfortunately, through the uh, the control of the corporate media. 
Yeah, you could say the same about putting people's obviously attention to Russia and Ukraine, you know, basically every day, but not Yemen. Most people wouldn't even have a clue, obviously, what's going on there. And obviously, that's quite a brutal war in itself. And before we start moving on to your, your episode, I just had a couple more questions. So especially in the COVID era and the Russia-Ukraine one, you see each media organization, when they write an article, it almost looks identical, like it's press releases, especially, you know, front pages of newspapers, I'm sure that always happened. But they always seem to be so similar. And a specific example I remember is when Joe Rogan came out and said he used ivermectin, along with basically 14 other things that obviously wasn't uh, discussed. And every Amer- American, it was more a Sky reported it, but the British didn't really go for it. He's, he's an American guy, isn't he? But everyone, you know, Reuters, a- you know, AP, all of them, CNN, it was just like identical. Why do you think they are that that is? Uh, part of that actually goes to the roots of that uh, cor- uh, the commodification of news and information that I was talking about earlier. Because you talk about AP. What mm. is AP? It's the Associated Press. It is a wire news agency, which... Um, the the way that people can understand this is probably um, from those internet, the the viral clips that people have seen by now of people putting all of these different newscasters from all of these different local channels, all yeah. saying the exact same thing, almost as if it was scripted, right? But no, it's my local news reporter who's saying this. So you can see those types of mashups that have been made. And I think that blows people's minds because they don't understand that most news these days really is centralized. So if you look at the development of the wire agencies in the 19th century, it is a fascinating story in and of itself, but essentially the advent of telegraphy um, enabled the ability for uh, uh, essentially businesses to arise that would commodify news by placing agents in various key European capitals, of course, was where it first originated. And they would be able to, for example, they if you're in London, you'd be able to get reports from Berlin and Paris and elsewhere around Europe of informa- of news that just happened yesterday when you're reading it in your morning newspaper. It's incredible. And of course, a valuable service, right? What could go wrong with that? But of course, it, then as I say, it starts to centralize around the few basic wire agencies that are then sending the exact same stories out all around their circuit, whichever, whether that's Europe or at this point, the world, like the Associated Press. And suddenly you have all of these local news reports and newspapers and news channels and news websites that all have the exact same stories reported in the exact same way. That's the most obvious way in which we can understand the sort of centralization of the script, as it were. Um, I think there are more nefarious ways at work as well. And they could be uh, conceptualized around, again, I think most of the people who work in the news industry um, probably genuinely are not actively part of or think of themselves as part of some conspiracy to suppress news. But exactly as it has been observed, if they, if the these anchors and these reporters were not the type of people who knew how to steer away from Lee Harvey Oswald, the lone nut. It, it, there are certain things that you know as a reporter you don't talk about. You don't go into that. You don't start digging things up in certain places. And if you know what places to avoid, you will be the type of reporter who will be promoted and eventually maybe you can be the, the news anchor, etc. So that's, I think that's how this functions on that level. 
Um, the real question then is the editorial level and uh, what's above the edit editorial level. And I think that's where the real power is flowing from this. But it's about the centralization and the commodification of this that means the standardization of news, exactly as you talked about, where you can be reading essentially literally the exact same text or sometimes the the exact same story just said in a different way, unfortunately. Yeah, that's definitely a good point that if you play the game, you'll be promoted. So, you know, there being the anchor positions on the nightly news or wherever it may be to, you know, say whatever story it may be. Just the, the last question on this topic. So you can clearly see the legacy uh, media is losing viewers and trust. So would it not be maybe more financially beneficial to, you know, start telling the truth or, you know, build the trust back up in the public if they're slowly dying out and people are going to alternative media and obviously different internet sites. So why do they basically continue to double down on what they know? They must have teams who sit there and look. Basically, people have no trust in us. They're going to these sites and they're like, well, we're just going to keep doing what we're doing. Maybe it's because it's more financially beneficial because, you know, the advertisers' money is so much stronger than the alternative media. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, actually, your question betrays you because from your question, I can tell you're an, probably an honest person who doesn't have nefarious intentions and isn't thinking about ways to undermine other people. You're thinking about how to compete and how to do better and how how can we get more and things along those lines. I don't think that's the calculus at work here. I think um, mm. these are people who are used to being in positions of power and I know how to wield and use that power to maintain their status or to increase it. And in that, from that mindset, which I don't have, and it seems like you don't have, and I think most average people don't have, but if you can put yourself into that mindset, you start to think, well, no, no, no. What we need to do is return to the good old days of our information monopoly, oligopoly, at least near total control of information. Now, how do we do that? Well, we we scratch the back of these politicians by, you know, covering up this thing here or reporting that thing there that they want us to report. And they'll scratch our back by regulating regulating the news industry and they'll put in all of these restrictions to get rid of all this pesky competition to censor anyone that we don't like or any competing voices so that once again people will have to come back to us there's no other way and that can be done absolutely overtly as it has been obviously in recent years um youtube and other platforms just censoring banning people like myself of course for criminal wrong think um but it can be done in more nefarious ways much more nefarious ways for example google search algorithms being tailored to mm -hmm. downrank anything that's not authoritative. Well, what's authoritative? The New York Times, the CNN, blah, blah, blah. The, the media oligopoly are authoritative and you and, and me and uh, Joe Blow out there, of course, we're not authoritative, so it, it won't direct you to us. And by that method of censorship, most people have no conception of a clue that it's even happening. They, how, could you, how can you know what you don't know, what you're not seeing? And uh, so unfortunately, there are many, many ways to do this. But I think that's, that's the way in which it, this is being approached. It's not how can we improve our product so people actually want it. It's no, how can we limit the competition so that people have to come back to us for our product? Yeah. No, yeah, you've, you've, you've uh, answered my question a lot better 
then uh, I question it. And yeah, you can clearly see, even when you go on YouTube, obviously all the top results are from news organizations and it becomes harder, obviously, with with shadow banning. Uh, yes, but- and let me, let me interject because that's, again, I, I want people to really reflect on how important that is. Because if you go back five years ago and you were on YouTube and you typed in the search term Federal Reserve, the first thing that would come up on that search result was Century of Enslavement, my documentary on the Federal Reserve, where you would learn some actual information about the Federal Reserve and what it was really created for and why. But, of course, who came along? I believe it was Chris Hayes of MSNBC who came along to tweet uh, about, oh my God, do you know if, imagine you're a high school student and you have uh, 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 an essay to write on the Federal Reserve. So you go to YouTube and you type in Federal Reserve and you get this. And he shows a screenshot of uh, the uh, the thumbnail of the Century of Enslavement. And he, he's like, oh, this is just unacceptable. And lo and behold, wouldn't you know it, the very next day you type in Century of Enslavement into the YouTube search bar, you type in Federal Reserve, of course you're not going to get Century of Enslavement anymore. You even type in Century of Enslavement, you're not going to get my documentary. You type it in quotation marks with Corbett next to it and whatever, and 47 uh, uh, positions down, you might find someone who reposted the documentary. They completely scrubbed it. And again, it didn't really make sense to me at the time why they were doing this this method why why like this why not just censor it all together or something like that why not put a warning label on it or something but why do it this way until i uh i I tried a smart tv for the first time and of course it's got youtube loaded up on it so you can just go and you just search and there's no way to refine a search on a on one of these types of devices you just make a search or if you're searching whatever via alexa or something there's no way you can't control it in any way it just tells you Okay, here's here's what is. And if you're 417 positions down in that search result, of course, it will never, ever, ever be seen by anyone. So it can be completely pushed to the side. It can be completely swept under the rug. That is that is power. That is what power looks like. The ability to control who gets to communicate in what way, at what time, and uh, whether or not they make you a star or they make you no one. And they can do that through the search algorithms these days. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I've never, I have a smart TV in my house. I've never really thought about that. Yeah, the filters are different on your phone. You can refine it much more. So that is an interesting point. Just before we move on, I actually remember something you spoke about before of maybe, you know, before 2015, you know, 2010 sort of years, where didn't YouTube used to have like, the top search thing so you could find like 9-11 documentaries, 9-11 truth documentaries. So could you touch on that just for a minute because yeah. I'm only 21 and if I do yeah. have any friends watching or people of a similar age obviously I have no memory of that because I've been about 10 years old so could you could you I feel like a grandpa talking about the olden <laughs> days but it's true yeah 2007 2008 I remember it very well when I was first starting out just starting to understand and find out about this information on the internet, in fact, through places like YouTube, which is unthinkable in, from today's perspective, but back in back in the day, it was the Wild West. And uh, yes, YouTube had a front page, which was the same page for, I think, everybody in the world. It wasn't even standardized by country at that point. And uh, it had the, whatever was, you know, the, the trending videos or whatever they called it. Uh, there was something called Google Video that existed 
back before YouTube or around the same time as YouTube um, that that did the same thing, the top 10. And I remember every single day back when I was first getting into this and just starting to find out all this information and, and uh, I was really excited about it. And every single day, the top 10 would be populated by seven documentaries of, you know, terror storm and things like this, like real incredible documentary stuff was getting to the top every single day until, of course, then they sort of changed it from the top 10 to the trending, which of course means whatever they want it to mean. And then they shove it off to the side and then they make it sort of a drop down. So you have to like click through to find it and then they just scrub it all together. So that's that's the evolution of uh, of this type of thing, because I, I really do in, in a sense. I'm very, very optimistic because I understand. I, I have seen it now. I understand it. I lived through it. When there is a free and open playing field where people really can communicate freely, the truth will come out and it will be popular because people understand and resonate with the truth. Lies have to be sold and pumped down people's throat and they have to be you have to be drilled and over and over and over don't believe your lying eyes don't believe your lying ears just listen to what we're telling you and people understand that on some level and when it makes sense oh i understand oh that now that explains that that explains that i think people really do resonate for it people really are thirsty for it but we have unfortunately re-entered into an information dark age. In fact, in some ways, potentially a much darker one than uh, we saw even in the the nadir of the 20th century media oligopoly. Yeah, I agree. Truth resonates much more than people because, again, yeah, it doesn't have to be forced down people's throats. People prefer much more natural sayings, which is why podcasts become so popular rather than like talk shows. They're like mm -hmm. saying to the side, there's a crowd and it's basically five minutes to, to sell their book or wherever it may be. People like natural conversation, don't want it really edited or anything like that. But let's uh, move the conversation on to your recent-ish uh, episode, The Media Are the Terrorists. Could you explain what made you make that and uh, what the Werther effect is and mm -hmm. where does it come from? Okay, yeah, let's start there. Um, the Sorrows of Young Werther was a, uh, a novel by Goethe, which I have not read. It's on my reading list, but I'm, I will confess that I have not read it. But it is, it is apparently about a, uh, uh, a young man, unrequited love, and he's uh, quite... Um, smitten with this woman, but he can never have her. So in the end, he, even, he eventually ends up killing himself. And apparently this became one of the earliest recorded instances of a copycat effect where young men in Europe started killing themselves in the exact same manner, dressed up in the the way that uh, Werther was in this uh, novel, etc. So um, it started to become a known phenomenon to the point where this book was actually banned in various places. So, uh, interesting, right? And could you imagine today a novel having that kind of effect on the public? Well, of course not, because unfortunately no one reads. But uh, do you think television? Do you think movies? Do you think those types of things can have that effect? Well, of course, it's a known phenomenon, which is precisely why when uh, media is dealing with subjects like, for example, suicide, you will always see the suicide hotline information and things like that always appended to it because the, the media, of course, they know that the, this type of thing really can spur people into action. When you see something fictionalized, even in a fictional environment, you are more likely to go out and do it. Now, this obviously has some incredible resonance with such things as Columbine, 
which was the advent of the school shooting phenomenon of the past couple of decades, where every time there's a school shooting event and it becomes the 24-7 and look, here's the names and faces of the people suspected of doing this and wow, aren't they famous now? And again, what to what degree are the media culpable for actually propagating and and making those events happen, given the fact that they know know that there are copycats that happen about that uh, with regards to these types of things. So in that regard, I talked to Lauren Coleman, who wrote a, a, a book on this subject that if you're at all interested in, you definitely should read. It's called The Copycat Effect. And he has a, a blog where he has been keeping track for decades now of this these types of copycat phenomenon and how they are propagated through the media. He has many, 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 many examples in his book. But one that um, was particularly interesting was uh, I, I interviewed him around the time of the Aurora, Colorado um, Batman movie shooting, James Holmes. Um, uh, and I believe it, we talked a couple of weeks maybe after that shooting. And he had, in, uh, in the immediate wake of that shooting, he had said, there is going to be a copycat shooting within a week. Um, because the the way the media is portraying this, the, the, the I've seen this so many times, there will be a copycat. And lo and behold, there was a man arrested in Maine uh, for planning and thankfully not perpetrating, but planning and um, getting the stash ready for a copycat uh, shooting at the very theater where Lauren Coleman had actually seen uh, Batman uh, Rising or whatever it's called, uh, The Dark Knight Rises, uh, yeah. a, a couple of days before that. So um, so that was an interesting part of that, which just goes to show that, uh, again, I think he knows what he's talking about. But the, the deeper issue here is if the media, again, is knows that th this is not some new thing that people have never heard about. The copycat effect is a real studied phenomenon that you can read academic treatises about. It has it is uh, a known quantity. So but what about those types of portrayals of well, obviously, suicide and things like that is perhaps the most common uh, way that this is understood. But what about some of the other things? I, I mean, it brings up the real fundamental point of the the war on terror, the war of terror. I call it the war of terror because it is a war that is being directed at the public, the viewing public, generally speaking. And I think... As we were talking about earlier, the the greatest power that any tyrant has is the ability to direct the attention of the public. So if you can direct the attention of the, say, the American viewing public to the point where people are more, way, way more scared and way, way more cognizant of Al-Qaeda terror around every corner, and I could die in an Al-Qaeda terror attack, when in rea reality they're statistically much more likely to drown in the bathtub, die of a bee sting, a lightning strike, you name it, all of these crazy things that sound insane, but oh, actually Americans dying of Al-Qaeda terror attacks in America since 9-11, actually there's many, 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 many more things that you statistically should be afraid of. Why aren't you? Oh, because every single day you are receiving the doctrination and the programming, you should be scared of this, you should be scared of this, you should be scared of this. That raises the fundamental question, who are the terrorists? Is it the, the is it even the people who are committing the terror attacks? In a certain sense, all they are all they can do is that particular action, which affects those particular people. The rest is done by the media, 
which draws attention to those acts. That's why terrorists have always, always relied on the media and always claim responsibility and want to get that attention and want their name and their their cause. It, that's why they do what they do. Terror only works when it is propagated out to the masses as the media does. So there are some deep questions about what the media is essentially in that relationship. Are they are they terrorists themselves or at the very least terrorists by proxy? So with the school shootings or, or terrorist attacks and, and big events like that, what, what do you think the media should be doing instead? Because with something like 9-11, people would say, or argue, obviously, you cannot not report on that. It's too right. big. When it, right. Maybe, you know, I remember when even when I was younger, say like 14, 15, when the ISIS attacks were going on, every time there was an attack, even if, you know, they wasn't that affiliated with ISIS, but they had, you know, some stuff at their house, Instantly, they say it's an ISIS attack, which obviously scares people more. And what I find interesting with uh, football or soccer uh, is when someone invades the pitch, they will not show it because yeah. they don't encourage people or exactly. make them, yeah. you know, a celebrity, which, I mean, it, do it doesn't really prevent it because people still run on for other reasons. But they have the thought, well, let's not show them because let's not make them a celebrity or give them reason to want to go on. But then <laughs> with an ISIS attack, which actually kills people isn't you know just a bit of fun that you know they do report it so i find well, it interesting well, you raise some good points because let's not straw man here absolutely something like a 9-11 of course i mean what why does news exist it is for some sort of event like that how are they not going to talk about that or portray it but the the incredibly important part of this is how do you contextualize it? How do you follow up on that? What do you do with that? Do Does that then change your entire conception of the entire world and how everything should be organized? So we have counterexamples that we could pair off against, say, the, the ISIS attacks and other things that have occurred sporadically here in Europe and uh, elsewhere for the past couple of decades. Uh, we could look at the the bombings of America that we forgot, as Time magazine called it, which was a string of bombings, terrorist bombings that took place in New York and Chicago and San Francisco and around the United States in the 1970s. There were a number of different perpetrators of these types of attacks, the uh, Symbionese Liberation Army, the New World Liberation Front and others, literally committing terror attacks and blowing things up and in some cases killing people and... At this point, who even who even knows about that history? At that point, it was not full front page news every single day. Oh my God, another bombing, another blast. Where will the next one be? And now how can we reorder the country in order to deal with this terror threat? No, they understood at that time, the more we report on this, the more that we give it attention, the more it will happen, the more effect it will have. So at that time, they weren't reporting on it. So what changed? in the post 9-11 era. Obviously, we don't want another 9-11, but does that mean that then we report on literally every single possible terror threat that could possibly happen anywhere for any reason and things that, even if it's at you know 99 times out of 100, at least in the United States, oh, it was an FBI informant, it was, a, it was someone that the FBI was working with, the FBI entrapped them, et cetera, et cetera. It's always something along those lines. But anyway, reporting on every plot and then moving on to the next one before we have time to even parse what that last one was about and continually pe keeping people in fear. There are, there are ways to report that presumably would not terrorize or give rise to copycatting, but 
I think demonstrably what we've seen over the past couple of decades of the war of terror or the past few years of the uh, the scandemic. I think that is not the way you would report if you were not trying to encourage the hysteria. Do you not say, they play devil's advocate, would you not say the reason they report on every terrorist attack from every angle and COVID is because fear sells? No one really goes on to check the news to hear good news. It's like COVID every day, checking every day, constant story of well, what are the numbers today, you know, just because they're, they're, they're scared themselves. So they, they want that dose. Is it not just these companies? And there was even the, the video with Project Veritas, I think, with a, a CNN uh, writer who basically said, you know, blood, was it blood leads or something like that, fear sales. So they, he said that the network head said for the COVID death counters to basically stay on it because it was giving them more ratings as people were checking yeah. in to see yeah, it. So if, could, could if it leads, it leads. Yeah, 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 exactly. And I think that that is how people have traditionally, most cynically, uh, in within the mainstream narrative, I think that's the way people have approached this. Well, yeah, they're just trying to. I mean, obviously, it sells newspapers, it gets eyeballs, something like that. Um, but I would say it's demonstrably different, especially in the internet era, um, because I, I think the, the the in a sense the commodification of our attention, the attention economy that has arisen in the past couple of decades, is a race to the bottom. Um, with regards to who can be the most sensational, who can get the most grabby headline. And it really does not matter at all to these, certainly to these companies, um, whether you whether you click out of, what is this? And then you're angered by, oh, this is nothing, this is stupid. You, a click is a click and they win either way. So there is there is that element to it. But uh, again, I think it's it's too coordinated in terms of this particular issue becoming the only thing we can talk about during this 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 time this era i think that that speaks to uh far too much coordination for it to simply be a cynical media tycoon who decides oh i think we're going to we're going to try to hype things up and sell it again this did happen way back in the early days of of newspapers the yellow peril and uh the the yellow journalism of hearst and and his uh, his rivals in New York uh, trying to compete for people's attention. So it's it's not a, a uniquely modern phenomenon, certainly. Um, but again, I would say that the uh, certainly the war of terror reporting yeah. is is different than that. Um, yes, it is to some extent bleeds it leads, but there was a lot of not bleeding as well. That was still every single day there would be a reason for Al Qaeda or the latest the uh, the latest po potential for some unnamed threat that we can't tell you about the the color code changed oh my god uh th that seems to me to be a, a, a different phenomenon uh than than the prurient sort of reporting of oh look at these dead people or something like that yeah i mean the war on terror is definitely different there's clearly obviously an agenda to drum up war to make the terrorists that as scary as possible to be able to go to the wars in afghanistan or Iraq, and then, you know, continue on basically to today. So, uh, yeah, that was definitely a different era of there was an agenda. We need to keep them scared. We can't let them forget about 9-11 and just put it into perspective of, you know, that's probably not going to happen again for a long time because they, they needed uh, the support. If you want to go back to 9-11, the movie, and what you covered in the episode of the Pentagon B movie and, and talk mm -hmm. about that, I thought that was uh, interesting. 
Right. Well, okay. I'll have to give the hat tip to Gray McQueen, um, who is a professor who uh, uh, has written a book about anthrax that I've I've talked to him about that before, and he's written a number of articles, um, scholarly articles for the uh, the Journal of 9/11 Studies, etc. One of which, um, as you say, the Pentagon's B movie, looking at the 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 sort of crossover between 9/11 and and Hollywood, and there are a number of different ways that you can approach that. I mean, for example. Um, Tom Clancy and others have talked about uh, Tom Clancy, for example, wrote a novel about about a uh, was it a terror attack flying a plane into the World Trade Center or into a building in New York, something along those lines. So um, people came to him afterwards. Well, how did you possibly know that was going to happen? He said, well, it was it's an idea that's been out there. Um, the lone gunman um, television pilot people might have seen um, that was about hijacking an airplane via remote control in order to fly it into the World Trade Center that took place six months before 9-11, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and there are a number of times when in movies where the World Trade Center is struck or things along those lines. Um, so there's that kind of level of crossover, but there's a deeper connection there, which um, I think Ray McQueen was gesturing at, which is the, the essentially filmic nature of 9-11, that 9-11 was constructed to play out like a Hollywood movie. And that's why you see over and over and over and over and over again in the testimony uh, from people from that day, the firefighters and other people who were interviewed on that day, it was like something out of a movie. It was like something out of a movie. They keep saying that over and over and over because that is the way that we, of course, how else would you conceptualize these incredible dramatic events that you couldn't even comprehend that you'd never seen anything like this before it's like something out of a movie. I've seen this before. I've seen it on the big screen. And so the implication is that, that of course, the terrorists, of course, knew and planned that in that way. Of course, the first plane strikes and people are just like, what's going on? Is that an accident? And as they're watching, the second plane strikes and it struck, struck. And then and then there's planes going on, going down over here and over there. And there's, the Pentagon's been hit. And it, it's like an unfolding story. Um, precisely because it would achieve the most terror that way. The only question then is, who are the terrorists? And I think if people want to dive down that particular rabbit hole, I did just recently complete a five and a half hour documentary on Al-Qaeda and the history of Al-Qaeda that they can go to at corporatereport.com slash Al-Qaeda, A-L-Q-A-E-D-A, if they want to get more information on who is Al-Qaeda and what really happened that day. But I think the point stands even if you do just swallow the entire Al-Qaeda narrative hook, line, and sinker, yes, of course, they're terrorists. They're trying to terrorize the public. They were doing it in a way that would have the most resonance, that would stick in people's mind, that would be this unfolding spectacle that would draw people's attention. That was obviously part of the plan. Yeah, and you mentioned in your episode about that RAND document, uh, talking about how the media is almost complicit in terrorist attacks when they talk about them it, it can you know lead to more and inspire more terrorists i'm not sure did you do you read the whole thing or was it just that sort of i did file? um but it's been a few months now so i i won't be able to quote it chapter and verse but um i did link it up in the show notes and yes uh I, I, essentially i think part of the point is that the terrorists have a sort of symbiotic relationship with the media because the, again fundamentally terrorism is about media 
that that is what it is about it's about getting the information out to a meet to the media if a terror attack happens in the forest and no one's there to see it does it really happen something along those lines um no it has to it has to be broadcast people have to see this and hear about it and and hear about the horror that's that's the resonance that terror has and that's why it can be an effective political weapon and so of course the the terrorists need the media and to a certain extent, maybe the media need the terrorists. Uh, well, they need something to report on anyway. And hey, this is this is a good business. So there is a, there is a symbiotic relationship that goes on there. Again, however you understand or conceptualize who the terrorists are. Yeah, the same as if someone takes someone hostage or the terrorists, they have, you know, that grainy video that goes on the media with the white cards of, of their demands. They obviously they need the media to send out that fear into the people to make the government act and give in to their demands and all of that. And uh, you started the episode with um, the Syrian missile flying over, and uh, I think I've come, I think it was N MSNBC talking about it. Why do you think they televise things like that, especially with the Iraq shock and awe campaign where you can see obviously at the fire, and you think, you know, wouldn't the people turn around and be like, this is pretty brutal, look, you know, look at these explosions, you know, there's people there being killed and we're watching it on TV like it's a yeah. film. Yeah. What purpose, is it a psychological purpose to normalise the scenes of war so the next time it, come, it comes, no one's really surprised? Or maybe you know, something there are there are a lot of profound points actually to to a question like that because it uh, it gets to the heart of what news is or the way that we conceptualize news in this particular era anyway because I, that was one of the things that I did in my history of the mass media course is you know in this era what was the news what what was it and how was it expressed and how did people understand it so for example of course pre Gutenberg pre movable type printing press. The idea of a daily compendium of news from what your local community, from the broader region being somehow compiled and then, well, it couldn't be printed. So it would have to be handwritten and then distributed to people. like, no, I mean, there's town criers for important announcements or, you know, if the king makes a proclamation, someone will read it out to the town or something like that. But there's no there's no concept of news as we understand it today that of course starts to develop with the printing press and then you start to get things that i guess we could kind of call newspapers but even then they're kind of not newspapers as we know them and that starts to develop and then eventually you arrive at something like our conception of news a daily compendium of things that happen today that you should know about that could be delivered to your doorstep and read um so okay so you got you got that conception of news but then uh, with the advent of radio and television and then satellite TV, and then you've got CNN. And let's keep in mind, it was only, I, well, I, I don't know what year it officially launched, but it was around 1990 that CNN really started to become a thing, 24-7 news all the time. And every, every moment of the day, you could turn it on and they're reporting the news as it's happening to that very second. And that... That idea, again, completely foreign to a generation or two ago. What do you mean? Like 24-7, nothing but news? Like, this is what's happening. I'm I'm standing in the middle of Paris and nothing is happening right now, but I'll be, I'll be here later. It doesn't make sense. Except CNN, the, the launch of CNN and the Gulf War went together. Uh, the first Gulf War was, uh, it was a CNN event. And I, I remember actually from my childhood, I was uh, an elementary school student, but I remember watching 
on CNN and there, you know, what's the latest update and what's happening now? And look, here's a grainy picture of something that will tell you was an explosion. And oh, look, and now we're going to the UN and look at this, this little girl talking about babies being thrown from incubators and other such things. So there is, there is some sort of relationship between the idea of 24-7 news and you need to know everything that's happening right up to the moment and these grand emergencies like war, like a coronavirus pandemic. Oh my God, it's killing people left, right and center. We need to know what's happening right now. So the 24-7 news aspect of it is, again, I think this is incredibly important for us to ponder why we think that our conception of what the news is, is the news. This isn't some idea that's written in the stars and it changes from generation to generation. And uh, we just need a little bit of historical perspective in order to understand that. And I have become so long-winded, I forgot what your original question was, but I know it had something to do with 24-7. It, it was about the Iraq uh, campaign being sort of a televised event of the bombings and your original uh, first part of the episode about the Syrian missile yes. and he's like right, quoting right, right. Uh, that poet. And that, yeah, right. I, I so crazy. so the, the concept of... Uh, of a war that's unfolding and what do you what do you show at every moment of every day while this war is happening of course you've got to show the missiles launching that is the most that is probably the number one thing you want to show on the news because it's actually something that you can see and you can conceptualize and you can frame in one single television shot that's the money shot there you go there's missiles flying they're gonna go and and it's the perfect shot because you get to see the the beauty of our weapons or whatever Brian Williams was saying, you get to see it going and it, yeah, it does. It looks, you know, uh, amazing. And obviously it's some sort of technological wonder and you could compare it to fireworks or whatever. And you don't get to see the people being exploded into a million bits on the other end of it, the little children and, and babies and, and mothers that are, that are dying at the other end of that. You just see them streaking off into the sky and it's all very poetic and you can wax, wax poetic about it. Um, so that. Again, there, there's. Uh, I think Neil Postman would have an awful lot to say about this. And if people haven't read some of his uh, iconic work on the subject of the media, they absolutely should. But he would, I think, very much argue that yes, that is what that is what war is on television. It is the, the shots of the, uh, the the missiles streaking across the sky or something like that, and then just endless shots of, and endless banter of meaningless, completely contentless commentary by the Brian Williams and whatever Pentagon Stooge has on to talk about these scenes, because it doesn't matter what they're saying. It matters what they're showing and sort of the underlying subconscious ideas that people are taking away from that. And uh, I guess we could even go uh, one step further philosophically and start talking about uh, um, Baudrillard. No. Yes. What? Yes. Baudrillard. Uh, the Gulf War didn't happen. Um, it, that was Baudrillard, right? Am I making uh -oh. that? I have no idea. I know it, it was the French guy. I'm sure it was Baudrillard. Anyway, um, uh, I, I covered this in my questions for Corbett, actually, about uh, about media. So people should definitely check that out because it's fascinating. His essentially his I, uh, his uh, thesis was that the Gulf War did not take place. It was a it was a television event. Yes. It didn't mean it didn't, there wasn't actual guns happening and things like this, but no, but fundamentally what that was, was a television event. It was a, a, a spectacle to be viewed and to be framed by these Pentagon spokesmen and people like this. This is the way we understood it. This is the way we conceptualized what war even is 
because if you look back at the first Gulf War, essentially it was a couple of days of something approaching kinetic military action and a bunch of people surrendering. It, 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 it's not even a war. I mean, what, what was the war aspect of it? Who was fighting back? I mean, maybe maybe a few servicemen died, maybe. Um, that, that wasn't a war, but it was a war in the minds of the public because it said on CNN and they had a title graphic and intro music and whatever else they had. And it was 24 seven coverage of it. Of course it's a war. Don't you see it's happening on TV? So I, again, I think even our conception of how we, how we interpret events that are happening are of course mediated through the media. Yeah. I think the Gulf War was more of sort of a, a bombing uh, campaign of the coalition. I don't, I don't know how many days it lasted a uh, couple months maybe but yeah it was more obviously i think of a of a, a bombing campaign but that, that's a, a different subject just to to circle back so when reporting on school shootings and things like that what do you think the media should actually do should for 9-11 you know we've spoke about that you can't ignore that but for school shootings should they you know maybe report it but not at nauseam every day where it seems to become you know a bit of a trend that, that people have started doing that and I'm sure they've uh, increased over the years so what do you think the media should do so you know I think with stuff like if there's a murder that happened to the other side of England where I, I live I don't really need to know about it because it doesn't put me in any danger but you know locally in the newspapers sure report on it but all it does is just make people think oh the world's a scary place like a stabbing happened in London they're like oh oh you go into London oh you better watch out someone got stabbed there the other day and Sure, it happened and it's relevant to the people who live there, but maybe I don't need to know about it because it, you know, it just makes you scared to go anywhere and most people are nice. So what, what do you think the media should do, especially now with social media and it's just sort of in the public sphere of stuff trends and I know those trends can come from the reporting and the media. So what should the, the, the media do and what should normal people do in social media because obviously stuff trends now. Right. Uh, well, I would encourage people to go back to my conversation with Lauren Coleman about this subject, because I, I did specifically ask him that question as someone who's studied this for decades. What how should the media cover this? And you're right, of course, in some way, if, if a Columbine or something happens, of course, it has to be reported. But how do you report it in a way that isn't going to generate copycats? And one of the most basic parts of this is do not flash the the pictures of the, the suspe suspects or, you know, this is who did it and this is their names. That is one of the, the primary ways that people are keyed into uh, copycatting um, is that, oh, oh, I will do that and I will be famous. Um, so do not advertise and publicize and, oh, here is the person. Uh, there's there's no public interest in that whatsoever, except for his family and people in that particular area. But for why why on earth should any of us know the names of the shooters at Columbine, other than hey, this is this is a way to achieve some sort of fame. So that's one basic part of it. Another part, of course, you don't have helicopter shots as it's going on and see people running out of the building and all of this dramatic footage. If again, if you want to encourage people to do that and to enact it, you certainly don't give details about how it was done. Um, that is one of the key things uh, that, that Coleman um, stresses is that um, when, when you talk about a suicide, it, the more graphic you are in terms of how the mechanics of what the person did and how they did it, the more likely people are to copycat that sort of thing. And same thing with 
school shootings and other things. If you know, oh, they planned it this way and they did this and they had the guns here and they they uh, chained the doors. That was one thing that started to become a copycat thing because uh, I can't remember, but in I'm sure it's in the copycat effect book. Um, Coleman notes um, one of the first times that that a uh, was it a school shooter or some some sort of shooting event, someone chained the doors so that other people can get out. And the media reported that. And so, of course, uh, a week later, during one of the copycats that resulted from that original, it, someone chained the doors and it becomes a thing that people know about. Oh, OK, they're going to chain people inside. Oh, OK, I'll do that. So, again, the more specific you are with specific details like that, again, zero public interest in knowing that information. The only thing it does is can, is encourage other people to do it in the future. So there are, again, there are ways that you can talk about these things that don't encourage and incite people to to do these types of things. I mean, the chain space more just <laughs> instructions of how to basically successfully kill people better, isn't it? There's not really much need to hear it. And again, just Going back to the, the copycat uh, one for a more modern example was that you mentioned the clowns in like mm. 2015 or something. There's, you know, all the clowns going around with weapons and it became a trend, but, you know, a trend of basically a copycat, isn't it? Yes. And who knows to what extent, uh, I mean, something like that could be completely fabricated or it could be something that starts out as a fabrication and ultimately becomes something real because other people then start copycatting it and bring it about into reality. And again, who knows how those types of things can play out or it eventually becomes a chicken and egg question. Is this a completely media constructed phenomenon or is it real? Or was it a real phenomenon that started because it was a media constructed phenomenon that encouraged people to do it in the first place? Is a, We've approached an hour now to, just for the, the closing thoughts. If you could just nail down just how important it is, whether the media report on something or not, and any closing thoughts. Again, I think uh, it would be, I, given the, the media environment that we're in, it, it of course there is a reason to report on big spectacular things that happen. But I would hope that at the very least we could become more cognizant of whether or not we really need the 24-7 type of coverage or whether it might be better to have a little bit of reflection and time to create sort of an understanding of what's happening and then to put it in a way that would be informative to other others rather than purely, purely spectacle. Um, because, but then again, that's pie in the sky thinking because as Postman constantly comes back to, TV isn't meant for dialogue or uh, modeling reflective, calm reflective thought or something like that. No, it is about things that can be televised. It's shown, it's striking images. And what is a striking image? People running out of a building as there's a shooter inside and there's chaos, that, that is an exciting image. So to a certain extent, it's, perhaps unrealistic to expect any given medium to act in any way other than that medium can act. Television cannot be a quiet time for reflective and interesting thought. It is it is spectacle and it's nonstop assault of, of images. And that's what it is. And to try to pretend that it isn't or to try to turn it into educational television, as, as Postman says, and I think he's exactly right, Sesame Street doesn't teach children to love learning. It teaches them to love television. And I think he's right about that. Um, so I think we have to be realistic about the, the nature of the media. And then 
and that maybe this could be a follow-up conversation we could have sometime, but then the question is, where is this going? Because TV, even that's getting a bit dated. I mean, do, do people still really watch TV? No, you stream something on Netflix on one of your devices. So now it's internet medium, which is a different thing, and there are different things to say about that, but soon it will be the metaverse, and that will be a whole different ballgame. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot to talk about there with social media companies, big tech, and you know the national security state, and obviously you could talk about the CIA in the media. Obviously, uh, that's an important subject, and now it's pretty just open now, and they're just hired. Like the other day, BBC uh, had the head of GCHQ, the version of America's NSA, as editor in chief on their like Radio Four program, and you're like, literally, the people who are surrounded by secrecy. Uh, the ones editing for the state-funded organization, you know, it was a, a meme. Like if it was Russia, yeah. people were like, yeah, you know. But yeah. and next us, up on the BBC, 007. <laughs> Tell yeah. us what you think about what's going on in Panama. <laughs> this is ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks for your time, James. I uh, really do appreciate it and give me a second chance after messing up uh, the time difference. So I'll leave you to your day. And uh, again, thank you for coming on, James. Thank you for having me. It's been a good conversation.